I hope you have your Bibles and that you'll open them to Mark 14. The scripture is not going to be on the screen today, so grab a Bible and follow along. Mark chapter 14. Last week when we ended, I felt like it was hitting pause in a movie right before a pivotal scene. So this morning, we are going to unpause or hit, de- hit play, depending on how your device works. We're going to s- jump back in right where we left off. And, but let me describe for you the scene we paused on. What's the scene that's frozen on the screen? Where did we stop? Well, it's dark. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's been a night of prayer for Jesus and sleep for the disciples. And Jesus has just woken up the disciples and told them, the time has come. I'm going to be betrayed into the hand of sinners. And we hit pause. And it's helpful to remember what, what got us here. We're in the middle of one of the most incredible nights in all of history. We go back to that supper, that Passover meal that was shared by Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, that meal in which he announced his death again, and also announced that he would be betrayed by one of the 12. After that meal, which would have lasted late into the evening, they head towards the garden, a place that they had been often together, a place where Jesus would pray. And what we've seen really clearly over the last two weeks is that Jesus had a clear awareness of what was about to happen. And it really comes to a climax in the garden. Remember we saw that last week, that shift in his emotions? Mark described him as greatly distressed and troubled. I told you last week, this was different because when you or I are greatly distressed and troubled, it's usually because we have sinful worry. Or anxiety or fears. But here's Jesus who never sinned and yet feels this weight. Not mainly because he's going to die, because many people died with great bravery. Jesus felt this distress because of what he was about to carry for you and for me. Mark says he was greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus says himself, I'm sorrowful even to the point of death. So sorrowful I feel like it could kill me. And it's out of that distress and sorrow that he goes to God in prayer for hours. And he prayed for two things, kind of the same thing, but kind of two things. First, he prayed, God, if if there's any other way, would you let this cup pass from me? But then second, he prayed this, not my will, but your will be done. And as we bring those two requests together, what we see is the weight of what was coming. We see the the significance of what Jesus was walking towards so great that in his flesh he wondered if he could bear it. But we also see the steadfastness of Jesus as he submits to the will of the Father. And that was our word last week, right? Steadfast. We saw this absolute commitment from Christ to the plan of God. A commitment to doing all that was needed in order to accomplish our salvation. And there's lots of words that we could use to say steadfast. Unwavering, unfaltering, unswerving, committed, dedicated, resolute. 
we settled on the word, or I settled on the word, steadfast. And it's a word that's applied to God a lot in the scriptures, hundreds of times. Usually, in our translations, that word steadfast comes right before the word love. Steadfast love of God. We think of passages like the one we read together a while ago, Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that a great truth? That God's love is steadfast. It, It doesn't change. It doesn't waver. It never comes to an end. And the scriptures go to great lengths to help us see this. Over and over we read about the steadfastness of God, particularly his steadfast love. It it never changes. It never wavers. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. It's repetitive, but it drives the point home, doesn't it? His love never fails. And we see this playing out through the story of the Old Testament because the people of God are continually rebelling against God. They're not faithful, but his steadfast love never ceases. They rebel and turn away, but he never does. What's the greatest display of the steadfast love of God? Probably Christ coming, right? In the flesh to live among us and to die for our sins. Jesus is the incarnation of the steadfastness of God, proving that God always keeps his promises, that God is faithful. And we see it in the way Jesus lives. It's especially clear in this night before the cross. We saw last week in the prayer that Jesus prayed, we saw it in how he responded to the disciples in their weakness. And we're going to see it this morning in his betrayal, his arrest, and in the fact that he was forsaken by his friends. Through it all, through everything he endures, Jesus remains committed to the plan of God. He remains steadfast. And you're thinking, we get it. (laughs) You said this last week. (laughs) You said it over and over. We sang about it. We get it. Jesus is steadfast. And you're right, I'm repeating myself. But let me say two things before we go to our text and we keep talking about it. First, I'm convinced that this is at the heart of what God wants us to see from Christ in this moment. His unwavering, unswerving, unchanging walk towards accomplishing the will of God. And second, I think it's important for us because as we see the steadfastness of Christ, we're reminded that not only was he steadfast then, but he's steadfast now. And that changes so much, doesn't it? It's true of him today, in your life, in your situation. He will keep his promises. He will finish what he has started. He's working out your salvation even now through that situation in your life that seems too heavy to handle, through that persistent temptation that's there every day, through that coworker, the rebellious child 
the unreasonable expectations, all these things we face, and in it, God is working out our salvation, and he's being faithful to the promise that he made that he will finish what he began in us. He's steadfast. And that's what we see again this morning as we go to Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 43 to 52. I hope you'll follow along as I read, starting in verse 43. Hear the word of God. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, Judas went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And the crowd laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. A young man followed with him, excuse me, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's true. It's been preserved for us and for our good. I pray that God will use it for our benefit this morning. We say that every week, don't we? The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. And yet, it just seems a little weird to say it after a story about a young man running off into the woods naked. Sounds like a bad dream, doesn't it? <laughs> running around like someone's taking your clothes and you're trying to get home. What's it all about? Why is it here? We'll get to it. But first, remember the setting. Remember that paused screen it's the middle of the night. Jesus has been praying. He walks back a third time to find his disciples asleep. He wakes them up and he tells them that the time for his betrayal has come. And that's where our story begins. Immediately, verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve and with him a crowd. You can picture the crowd with swords and clubs. They've been sent from the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I want to encourage you to, to, to put flesh on the story, to see it in color. Remember the supper that just happened, the announcements that were made, the prayers of Christ. The disciples who are just waking up and rubbing their eyes, because it's like maybe four in the morning. And Jesus says, my betrayal has come. And all of a sudden, the silence of the garden is interrupted as a mob arrives. And who's leading the charge? One of them. One of the twelve. Judas. And that's the way Mark describes it. He says, here comes Judas, one of the twelve. And as we read that, I wonder if you think, 
Why that description? Because just earlier in this chapter, he's told us Judas, one of the 12, is going to betray Jesus. Why the repetition? We know who this is, don't we? No one's wondering at this point in the story, is this some other Judas? We know who it is. And yet Mark tells us again, I think to emphasize the betrayal. This is one of the 12. Someone who is as close to Jesus as anyone, part of the inner circle, someone we never would have expected to rebel in such an egregious way. And yet here he is leading a crowd that's come to capture and arrest Christ. And as we read that, can we just for, for a minute forget that in our minds, those of us who've grown up around the Bible, Judas has always been the black sheep? Can we just forget that for a minute and try to remember how shocking this would have been? That one of the 12 would betray Christ in this way. And we, I said it last week, but it's worth repeating. When we hear of Judas, it should serve as a warning to all of us. A warning of, of what? Of the deceitfulness of sin. How easy it can be. Church, this is easy. Hear this. It is easy to believe the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So easy. It starts small. It starts with a little compromise here. A little hidden sin over there. And before long, we are in over our heads. Believing that there are other things that are more satisfying than Christ. Sometimes we don't recognize how exactly we got to where we are. And, and we don't know how Judas got to be here. But here he is. Someone who had seen it all, had a front row seat for everything Jesus had done and said, and even backstage passes. He saw it better than anyone, and yet chose to betray Christ. I say he saw it better. Obviously, he didn't. He saw it with his physical eyes, but not with the eyes of his heart. And the betrayal we have here, this isn't a timid betrayal. The scripture tells us that Judas had a plan of showing the soldiers which one was Jesus, and he could have determined any sign, right? What does he choose? He says, I'll go up and I'll kiss him. Why was this necessary? Well, think about it. They're walking up into the garden. It's dark. Jesus, despite what you may have seen or been told, didn't have a perpetual glow about him. He was going to be one of these group of men in the garden. These soldiers may not have known him or may not be able to recognize him in the dark. Judas says, I'll make it very clear. I'll go up and I'll, I'll kiss him. Now, at this time, for a disciple to kiss their master wasn't odd. It was normal. It was a sign of respect, of reverence. How wicked must the heart of Judas have been to use something that was meant to convey respect and reverence as the sign of betrayal. What kind of wickedness is this? He didn't stand back at a distance and shyly say, he's the one over there. No, he walked up. He looked him in the face. He called him rabbi, master, teacher. And he kissed him. Not to honor him, but to betray him. 
what I really want us to consider here is the depth of that wickedness, but at the same time, the response of Christ, the steadfastness of Jesus. Think about the pain that, of the road he's walking. It's no small thing. And even though Jesus knew what was coming and he knows who Judas is, he's still there, being betrayed by someone who he has given so much to. And don't be fooled. Jesus had the power to call him out, to put him in his place. Jesus could have done and said all the things that you and I want to say when we are betrayed, and Jesus could have done it with perfect righteousness. But he doesn't. He knows this is the road that he must walk, and he looks into the face of Judas, who has just betrayed him with a kiss, and according to the Gospel of Matthew, he says this to Judas. Of all the things he could have said, what does he say? Friend, do what you've come to do. steadfastness, a commitment to the plan of God, the plan for your salvation. In the face of mocking and bold betrayal, Jesus submits to the will of the Father. He is steadfast. Peter, remember Peter's there, he's seeing all this. These are all part of Peter's memory bank. He remembers that night. He writes this in his epistle. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Steadfast. And it's because of his steadfastness, friend, that you can trust him. I know you're like me. And there are moments early in the morning or late at night when doubt creeps in. Times when you wonder if God will in fact keep his promises. And friends, I want you to hear this. He doesn't waver. He will do what he has said he's going to do. And our world is seemingly as uncertain as it had ever been. That's our perception. We need this assurance. We know the one who is unmovable, who keeps his promises. In the face of betrayal, he remains steadfast because that was the road that he must walk to keep his promise. And the betrayal was just the beginning. So much follows. As we go on, we see that after Judas identifies Jesus, soldiers come and take him into their custody, or to use Mark's language, they laid hands on him and seized him. Who? Who did they lay hands on and seize? The one who had made all things. The one who spoke all things into existence. The one who breathed breath into the life of man is now seized and bound. And while he had the power to stop it, he doesn't. And when others try to stop it, he doesn't allow it. We see in verse 47, one of the disciples tries to take matters into his own hands. 
one of those who stood by, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest to cut off his ear. Why does the Bible, why is it not thousands of pages longer, right? We need more, Mark. The other Gospels give us a little bit more. We're told in the Gospel of John that it was in fact Peter who pulls his sword and strikes a man, a servant of the high priest, no doubt, in my mind, trying to kill him. But a slight move by one or the other and not the head, but the ear is struck. It could have initiated a riot, a battle, but Jesus doesn't allow it. The other gospels tell us that Jesus rebukes Peter, tells him to put his sword away. And then he undid what Peter had done. He takes the ear and the man is healed. Mark doesn't give us all the details, but it's clear that Jesus doesn't allow a fight. He's committed to doing what he came to do. He could have stopped it, but he doesn't. The Gospel of Matthew records what Jesus said to Peter. Matthew 26, he says to Peter, Do you not think that I can appeal to my father and at once he'll send more than 12 legions of angels? I can stop this, Peter. I have the power to stop this. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. Jesus had the power to end it all, but he didn't. He doesn't defend himself or plead his case. He submits to the will of God and to the will of the mob. And we see that in Mark, Jesus points out that all of this is happening as the scriptures have foretold. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple. I was teaching you. You did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And I can't help but think that in this moment, Jesus is pointing out the cowardice and the hypocrisy of those who have come after him. It really is ironic. Jesus hadn't been hard to find, had he? He hadn't been holed up somewhere, armed and ready for a fight. Quite the opposite. He'd been in Jerusalem teaching in the temple. They could have arrested him at any time. But Jesus, they knew the crowds would try to protect him. And they feared the crowds. And I think they knew that what they were doing was shameful. Jesus says as much. He says, you come out here under the disguise of night with men and weapons like I'm a criminal. You're acting like I'm dangerous and that I've been evasive. But I've been right here in the open all along. Again, I think he's pointing out their hypocrisy and their cowardice. He could have stopped it. He could have said a word and it would be over. But here's what he says. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. This was God's plan. Jesus knew he would be betrayed, arrested, and killed. He says, let it happen. This is what the prophets have prophesied. It's what Isaiah said. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
They made his grave with the wicked. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he was counted among the transgressors. The arrest was secretive and shameful, but Jesus lets it happen so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. So the plan of God will be accomplished. What is this? But steadfastness, unwavering, unfaltering, unswerving, commitments, dedication, and resoluteness. The crowd was fully armed, but make no mistake, he wasn't captured against his will. John says it this way in John 10. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This isn't a story how, is a fa- excuse me. It's not a story of how Jesus was ambushed and taken against his will. It's about Jesus giving himself willingly to the plan of God for our salvation. Doing exactly what he said he would do. And listen to what else he says he will do. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's good news, isn't it? Eternal life forever secure in the hand of Christ. And he's steadfast. He will do what he has said he will do. Why should we be thankful about his steadfastness? Why should we be thankful that he keeps his promises? Because he has promised us eternal life. And he has promised us that he will never let us go. And there are so many other promises he has made. And they're all true and we can trust them all because he is steadfast. Steadfast in betrayal. Steadfast in arrest. Steadfast when forsaken. Verse 50, they all left and fled. What did Jesus mean when he said the scriptures must be fulfilled? I think in part, he was talking about the fact that he would be led away and counted among the transgressors like Isaiah says. I also think in part, he's remembering what he had just said hours before, quoting the prophet Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So that the scriptures will be fulfilled, Jesus is taken and the disciples flee. Remember when he said that earlier in chapter 14? He said the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will scattered and the disciples know he's talking about them. And they all protest Peter most loudly. But then they all say the same thing. We will not deny you. Even if we have to die, we will not deny you. And now Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. He's arrested and they do, in fact, scatter. Mark says they all left him. Judas did the worst, but they all forsook him. When they felt danger, they all left. And we could stop here and talk about the call of the New Testament to remain committed. There's a lot to be said about remaining true to Christ even when it's hard, even when it costs you everything. And when we read about the disciples fleeing from Jesus in the time of danger, 
we should say to ourselves, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to fall away when things get hard. And that is a good and appropriate response. And I think that's an implication of this text. But the main thing I want you to see, and what I think Mark is pointing out, is that Jesus was left alone. They all left him. All those who said, we will never leave, they left. They fled. Not only the 12, everyone including this mysterious young man. Which brings us to the point you all showed up for. Tell us about this streaker. What's going on with that guy? There's no way around it. It's a weird part of the story. Mark says a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. No introduction, no conclusion, no here's who he is and here's what happened. Only place in the scripture we're told about this guy. But it's inspired by God and preserved for us, so we have to ask what's going on and why. Let's work with what we know. A young man who apparently has been following, maybe he heard there was a mob going to get Christ and he wanted to see how will Jesus get out of it this time. He's there, he's watching the scene. The disciples all start to run. And he runs also. But he's caught. Maybe being held onto by just the garment he was wearing, he wiggles out and runs. The clothes are left and he's running nude. That's what we're told happened. Which brings the next question, why? Is it comic relief? What's going on? Let me give you two reasons why this might be here. First, and this goes back to the early church, a lot of people throughout church history have believed that the young man in this story was in fact Mark himself, the writer of the gospel. That he was there that night. That he saw it all happen. And that this is his personal story, and perhaps this is his way of confessing. I ran too. He ran naked, and he includes that, perhaps revealing his shame. It's embarrassing to run home naked. Maybe you have done that, and you know how embarrassing it is. Mark's ashamed that he ran. We can make the connection back to the Garden of Eden, and many have, of when Adam and Eve sinned and they became ashamed of their nakedness. Maybe Mark is confessing his own sin and shame. Many in church history have seen that as what's happening here. This is Mark's confession of his own shame. Maybe that's true. Here's what I think we can be sure of. That Mark is emphasizing that no one remained. Everyone left. And when we hear that, we should recognize our own tendency to run. Our own tendency to try to protect ourselves when things get uncomfortable. Even if it means running away from Christ. Everyone left. They all fled. And I think that's the main point. Jesus was left alone. And even when no one stood with him, what was his response? 
but steadfastness. All of his followers leave, but he's committed to the will of God. And praise God because his steadfastness was the means of our salvation. Over the last two weeks, we've spent our time talking about a four or five hour period. And you think that's about how long it's felt. Four or five hours, it seems. It's part of Jesus' life that I think could be misunderstood in a couple of different ways. First, we could read this and see a night, see the sorrowful prayers of Christ, his arrest, and read it as though something was being done to him. That he came to a place and he had no choice because God willed it and Judas betrayed him and the soldiers arrested him and his disciples forsook him. This was all done to him. And what I've hoped to show as we've walked through this is that nothing was done to him. No, he submitted to the will of God. He knew the heart and plan of Judas and could have stopped it. He had the ability to avoid arrest, but he didn't. He went steadfastly towards it so that the scriptures would be fulfilled and our salvation would be accomplished. And if you read the story of Jesus as an unwilling victim, then you've misread it in the worst way. On the other hand, some might read this story and misunderstand it a different way. Some may look at this night and the unfolding plan of God and think Jesus knew and he could have stopped it and he didn't. And they could see him as unaffected or unfazed. But I don't think we see that here either. Especially from last week, the sorrow and the distress, the weight of the betrayal and the forsaking, being forsaken by all his friends. I don't think we're true to the text if we see Jesus as stoic and unaffected. The Gospels are clear about the emotions of Christ. This was a hard night, and yet Jesus is steadfast. It wasn't an easy road, but he remains committed. This night shows us the willful, purposeful, purposeful, resolute commitment of Christ in the face of the hardest trials. In my prayer, on the second week of trying to drive this home for us is this that you would be and I would be unbelievably convinced that he never changes. He never fails. He always keeps his promises. And I pray that as you see his steadfastness, you know you can come to him for forgiveness, and he will forgive you. For mercy, and he will be merciful. For grace, he is so gracious. We read in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way as we are. But through him, we can approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted him at all. You've never come to him for forgiveness. Can I tell you, Jesus is real and he did this and he did this so that you can be saved. The Bible says that all who repent and believe will be forgiven and reconciled to God. You can't earn it based on your works. Your mom and dad and grandparents can't do it for you. It's only through Jesus that you are reconciled to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you must trust him. 
And for those of us who know him, the reminder of his steadfastness should encourage us to trust him all the more. I sound like a broken record. I picked one word and decided to talk about it for two weeks straight. But I think if we see the character of Jesus, it should change everything for us. To see his steadfastness is to recognize that we can trust him with today and with tomorrow and with eternity. We can trust him with our kids, with our lack, with our health, with our fears, with our dreams, with our marriages, with our work. Fill in the blank for yourself. He is steadfast and you can trust him. And as we see his steadfastness, not only should we trust him, but I think it should encourage our faithfulness as well. We see the fear and the lack of faith in the disciples, but I hope it encourages us to trust him more fully. To believe that we can follow him even when it's hard, knowing that as we follow him, he will be faithful to us. His promises are true. He will never leave us and never forsake us. His grace is up to whatever challenges we face. So this is the call. Look to his steadfastness. Look to him. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Praise God for the steadfastness of Jesus. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ.